0: Welcome to B-Sides, where you can get further reflections on God's Word to help you grow. This is a further reflection on the message from Isaiah chapter 42 called Serving in Seismic Shifts. It's the second of four messages we'll be doing on the servant in Isaiah, a four-figure of Christ and a model for us to follow. So... I was um, pleased to hear how many people were encouraged by the message and felt just a real tremendous response from uh, you, the congregation, as I was preaching. Because um, to be honest, it was something I wasn't sure how people would receive it. Often you get the impression that people just want Christianity to be popular again. Like that's sort of the mantra. Um, if only we were more popular. Uh And I almost preached the opposite that, you know, aiming for... Well, I did. Aiming for the crowd is not Christ's call on our lives. And we looked at how the servant doesn't aim for the crowd and Christ didn't aim for the crowd. Sometimes the crowd might be a result, but God is looking for us to be servants first. And that, yeah, he's going to do his greatest work on the outsides of society. In fact, you might remember from our message in Ezekiel, the very first message. Ezekiel was there on the Kabar River. Remember this? He's in Babylon. And there, this is what's amazing, there in Babylon, he sees a vision of the glory of God. That wasn't supposed to be. Israel's God, Yahweh, was supposed to be in the temple in Jerusalem. Yet there... In the suffering of his people, in their exile, in their being shoved to the margins, to the spaces and the cracks of a gigantic empire. That's where God's glory appears. And later he sees the glory leaving Jerusalem to move through the Eastern gates toward Babylon. See what we see here friends is that God has always favored the least the last the lost. And and you already heard this in the message. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 27 and on, right? That um, God is using the weak to put to shame the strong and so forth. He uses David to take down Goliath. Jesus himself was in many ways a David figure. And the early church persecuted, made fun of, it had no business growing the way it did. Yet as one historian has um has uh, researched, they believe that the early church grew at a rate of 40% per decade. 40% per decade, when there was absolutely no social benefit to becoming a Christian. In fact, there was everything but benefit. One, you could have been persecuted. And if you weren't persecuted, you were definitely made fun of or cast out basically as an outsider. With only those things to gain socially, there was absolutely no status in being a Christian. There was nothing to be proud of in the culture. You were following a crucified criminal. That's low status. And yet they grew at the clip of about 40% per decade. God likes to work in the cracks, the spaces, and the margins. And I believe he will do so if we're willing to stop trying to be cool, if we're willing to stop trying to fit in, if we're willing to let go of relevance and hold on to patience. God is not in a hurry. Just look how long the church has been going since Peter preached its first message and said, these are the last days. Yep, Two thousand years later, these are the last days. See, God's not in a hurry. We are the ones in a hurry. So we look for cheating methods. Well, I'm rehashing a lot of the message, I guess. So what I want to do is I want to get into a few things. I want to read a letter that really, uh, really grabbed my heart. And to be honest, was a lot of the inspiration as I was reading Isaiah. It just, what I read in this letter really showed, I think it helped lift out some of the themes of um, Isaiah 42. Uh, and then we'll look at something in Jesus's context that I just, it would not have fit in the message. It would just have been too long of a sidebar. So I'm going to put that in here, um, something about Jesus and how he treated his culture. And then we'll look a tiny bit at the early church and uh we'll then look at how the church is now compared to the early church. Okay. So first I want to start with reading that letter I was referring to. And this is in a book by Eugene Peterson called The Pastor. And um, I know I've mentioned Eugene Peterson several times before. Um, He's, for me, he's one of the authors that has been a big mentor to me. And I just love his approach, his his patient approach, his faithful approach to just simple Christianity. And in his book, he's writing about a time that he was meeting with some pastors, and um, one of the pastors suddenly announces, hey, I'm leaving my church to go seek a better opportunity. And as they were talking, they realized it's a bigger church. Now, there's nothing inherently evil or wrong with a big church. But our author, Peterson, sensed that there was a motive in this guy leaving his church, that he somehow felt this, as we termed it in uh, the message, the cancer of crowd craving. So I'm going to read this letter in its entirety. Um, this is from the book. It's Peterson writing to his friend Philip. And uh listen for just listen for the great wisdom here. It says, Dear Philip, I've been thinking about our conversation last week and want to respond to what you anticipate in your new congregation. You mentioned its prominence in the town a center, a kind of cathedral church that would be able to provide influence for the Christian message far beyond its walls. Did I hear you right? I certainly understand the appeal and feel it myself frequently, but I am also suspicious of the appeal and believe that gratifying it is destructive both to the gospel and the pastoral vocation. It is the kind of thing America specializes in, And one of the consequences is that American religion and the pastoral vocation are in a shabby state. It is also the kind of thing for which we have abundant documentation through 20 centuries now of debilitating both congregation and pastor. In general terms, it is the devil's temptation to, to Jesus to throw himself from the pinnacle of the temple. Every time the church's leaders depersonalize, even a little, the worshiping, loving community, the gospel is weakened. And size is the great depersonalizer. Kierkegaard's criticism is still Coggin. The more people, the less truth. The only way that Christian life is brought to maturity is through intimacy. Renunciation and personal deepening. And the pastor is in a key position to nurture such maturity. It is that, it is true that these things can take place in the context of large congregations, but only by strenuously going against the grain. Largeness is an impediment, not a help. Classically, There are three ways in which humans try to find transcendence. Religious meaning, God meaning, apart from God, as revealed in the cross of Jesus. Here they are. Through the ecstasy of alcohol and drugs, through the ecstasy of recreational sex, and through the ecstasy of crowds. Church leaders frequently warn against the drugs and the sex, but at least in America, almost never against the crowds. Probably because they get so much ego benefit from the crowds. But a crowd destroys the spirit as thoroughly as excessive drink and depersonalized sex. It takes us out of ourselves, but not to God, only away from him. The religious hunger is rooted in the unsatisfactory nature of the self. We hunger to escape the dullness, the boredom, the tiresomeness of me. We can escape upward or downward. Drugs can be personalized. Drugs and depersonalized sex are a false transcendence downward. A crowd is an exercise in false transcendence upward, which is why all crowds are spiritually pretty much the same, whether at football games, political rallies, or church. So why are we pastors so unsuspicious of crowds, so naive about the false transcendence that they engender? Why are we so knowledgeable in the false transcendence of drink and sex and so unlearned in the false transcendence of crowds? There are many spiritual masters in our tradition who diagnose and warn, but they are little read today. I myself have never written what I really feel on the subject, maybe because I'm not entirely sure of myself. There being so few pastors alive today who agree. Or maybe it is because I don't want to risk wholesale repudiation by friends whom I genuinely like and respect. But I really do feel that crowds are a worse danger, far worse than drink or sex. And pastors may be the only people on the planet who are in a position to encourage an imagination that conceives of congregation strategically, not in terms of its size, but as a congenial setting for becoming mature in Christ in a community, not a crowd. Your present congregation is close to ideal in size to employ your pastoral vocation for forming Christian maturity. You talked about multiplying your influence. My apprehension is that your anticipated move will diminish your vocation, not enhance it. Can we talk more about this? I would welcome a continuing conversation. The peace of Christ, Eugene. That resonated so deeply with me because I think he's right. 100% right. That church is meant to be a community. It's meant to be a fellowship. It's not an entertainment. It's not a show. It's not an event to attract people. Nor is it a place for us to boost our egos on a platform to whether we're leading music, sharing our own personal conversion testimony or displaying missionary endeavors, or the justice we've provided to our town, or the pastor preaching his ideas to applause. That's not what church is about. But making church about that can balloon it in size because that appeals to the one thing every human being has a need for, the ego to be fed and and I've been struck recently, and i'm I'm just kind of ranting off the cuff here, but um when I hear people talk about um I love my church, I love my pastor, our church is so cool, you've got to come, you've never seen a church like this or experienced a service like this now, on one hand, great, fine, wonderful, spectacular. It's great that people love their church. But on the other hand, and I can't help but just be biblically, a little biblical, using my biblical lens to, to be a little bit critical here, I have to stop and think, since when was it your church versus the other churches? Right? Since when were we called to love our local congregation and not the universal church? And so, what we see, and it's completely unrealized by those saying it, is that we've been sucked in to treating church the way we treat American goods. Consumerism. It's something to entertain me. It's something to attract me. It's something for me to vote for with my feet. Something for me to like or dislike. I really want to see our nation return to, uh, healthy congregations that foster relationships that, um, that seek to worship God. That seek to cultivate a genuine relationship because I believe that our most effective evangelism is not learning the methods of going out there and street talking to people or handing out tracts or yelling from bullhorns or cornering them with questions about have you ever sinned. I mean, look, I know all of those and I know people who have been saved by those things. Okay, God uses everything. But our most effective form of evangelism is brothers and sisters who are impassioned for Christ, who are on fire for Christ, because they are in the scripture, they're in prayer, they're going to church and fellowshipping, and they're breaking bread together. They're taking communion. They're recognizing, praising, and singing to the Lord of the universe. That is what society needs more than ever today, is to see an alternative path. We don't need Republicans to win. We don't need Democrats to win. Because, frankly, politics have become a bit of a religion in our nation. And we don't need to be known as the people who side with this view or that view. We need to be known as that alternate view, that that alternate path, the one that says, look, we just do everything differently. We actually love people because we love God. I believe that we have a nation starving for a place like that, but the church has been too cowardly to be patient enough to simply go back to the basics and practice it over and over and over and over. Um, sorry for the rant. So, like I said, we will, um, but I, I have, I have things to say, um, to kind of undergird a lot of that. So let's go to Jesus and, I think it's very simple when we just look at him and the fact that he chose now he had a lot of followers but he chose 12 he could have chosen 120 and given them special status and then everyone would have acknowledged wow there is the rabbi with 120 chosen messengers no but he chose 12 such a small number Jesus understood the temptation of the crowd. In fact, in John 6, when he healed, I'm uh, not healed, when he fed the 5,000, it said he perceived they wanted to make him king. So he hid. He went up to the mountain to pray. Wow. How many of us would have said, oh, feeding 5,000 gets me good PR. Well, let's do it again. Jesus was frightened by his ability to please the crowds. And he withdrew. It's almost as if he went straight to prayer and said, Father, help me not to use this power in a way that will cause me to be grossly elevated in the eyes of the crowd. It just seems that Jesus had said... You know why Jesus could act like this? Jesus was not in a hurry because he was confident that he belonged to God. He knew who he was on this earth. So he didn't have to go proving himself. He didn't have to go rushing around to do everything. I think we get that way because we are frankly insecure, especially Christianity, because we're seeing um, right after World War II, we were at our peak of popularity, but we've been slowly on the decline as secularism is growing, and we're feeling cornered, and we're feeling like we've got to start barking, like we've got to start defending or proving or promoting lest we be forgotten entirely. And that's not a good place to be. That's not a good way to respond. Instead, we recognize that, you know what? God sometimes allows his people to retreat to the cracks and the, pre- the crevices because there he's going to start a revival. There he's going to turn people's hearts to him again. And then the seismic shift, the earthquake will come into being. And by the way, those cracks only widen, right? When the seismic shift happens. What's gonna happen is the church is, is being pushed by society into the cracks of society. Meaning society has its own weaknesses. This thing we see going on in our nation can't stand on its own without the church. And so as it's shoving the church into the cracks, one day the revival will start. And all of these false ideologies and idolatries and this whole me first campaign in our nation, all of this will come crumbling down and the church will remain and people will say, finally, that is something we can build our lives on. There is something worth following. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. I just want to encourage us to not fear. What is It's in Malachi, I think. The prophet says, don't despise the day of small things. Oh, don't despise small beginnings. I think it's actually Zechariah. It's referring to the second temple and the building of it. When Israel comes back from their exile and they're rebuilding the temple, it's pathetic compared to Solomon's temple. But the prophet encourages, don't despise this. There will yet be glory coming here. Of course, that's in Jesus and his 12 when they come to the temple. Um, Jesus understood the temptation of the crowd. Now, to understand and appreciate how thoroughly Jesus understood the temptation of the crowd and how much he resisted it, I want to take you to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, and this is something you would not be able to see on your own unless you had some uh, social history, uh, the context of what life is like there. When you get that context, you see this verse in new light, and that's what I want to share with you. So, Mark chapter 1, verse 35, this is right after Jesus goes to Peter's mother-in-law's house in Capernaum, over at the Sea of Galilee, and he heals her, and then the whole town's bringing their sick and those that are demon-possessed to Jesus to heal them. And he does all night. And then what we see in verse 35 is something striking. It says, rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. Remember, this is Simon's house. His mother-in-law, he's, you know, holding his mother-in-law there. So Simon's coming out of his house looking for Jesus. And they found him and said to Jesus, Everyone is looking for you. Of course they are. He just healed so many people in the town. Peter's house has just become the most popular spot, not only in Capernaum, but the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus says to them, to Peter and the disciples that came out looking for him, oh, of course, I should go back. The ratings are at their highest. This is the the peak moment to preach a sermon, to gain more followers. No, you should know by now that's not what he says, right? Rather, he says, that's nice. Let us go on to the next town's that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. <clears throat> okay, so what's going on here? In this time, the whole Roman world, of which, of course, Israel has now been swallowed up by the Roman Empire and during Jesus' time, there was something the the system was called patronage. And of course, we have that still today. We refer to people who go to stores. The shoppers, the customers, we refer to them as patrons, the paying patrons, right? But our society does it very differently than they would have. See, we live in a sort of, think of like society as a sandwich. You have an upper class, a middle class, and a lower class. So a lot of people in the upper, a lot of, most of the people in the middle, and a lot of people in the lower Well, in the Roman world, you need to think more like a triangle. And at the very, 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 very tip-top of the triangle, you have the 1%. They're the wealthy ones. They're the aristocrats. They're the ones who own land. They're the ones who have political power. 1%. The 99%... The rest of that triangle are all living at best paycheck to paycheck. At best. Nobody's saving money. There is no such thing as a savings account. It makes a little more sense, doesn't it? When you hear Jesus teaching the Galilean crowds to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Daily bread was a real need. The 99%. So, if you can't save up any money, and if you're at best making it paycheck to paycheck, then you can understand how many were falling into debt. So, what would happen is, um, if you fell into debt, you would go to a patron and ask them to sponsor you, they will give you a little help, but in return they expect you to be loyal to them. See, the patrons, the 1%, That's the patron is the word for the wealthy 1%, they're all clamoring against one another to to gain the most influence, to see who can be the most powerful. Basically, (laughs) that's how politics worked there. Of course, you had Caesar, but then you had the 1% who were very influential because they were wealthy, and they helped make the laws to protect their wealth. So you would go to a patron, ask for help, and they would then ask for your help in return. You be loyal to me. You become a follower, so I amass a crowd of followers, and the more followers you have, this kind of sounds like politics in America, doesn't it? The more followers you have, the more powerful you are. So they were more than happy to help with their overabundance wealth to give just a little bit to make this little person a little bit happier and to gain a following. That was all a game. Well, Peter sees Jesus's power to heal the town he then sees the next morning how many have come back. Where? To Peter's house. Now, when a patron would wake up in the morning, you know, probably sleep in, because they don't really have to work. They just own a bunch of land. And uh, they own, by the way, they own the land um, when they are able to give out loans to the poor. And the poor, of course, default on them because they just can't make they can't pay back the loan, let alone the interest on it. So they know this is coming, so they give them out the loan, and then they seize the land when, you know, the weak fall into debt, and that's when they, they give their grace, their gifts to help them out. It's all such a scam to make the rich richer. Uh So, what was I saying? Uh, the Uh Oh, yeah, they don't have to work. They just own so much land, and, you know, he gets up whenever he does, and all morning, outside his gates of his wealthy house, You have the clients, the poor, the ones needing a little lift in life, waiting for him outside his gates like he's a god. And he comes out, and of course, they're kissing up to him, they're praising him. And as he goes into the market and into the town, he's got his entourage. That is what Peter may see happening at his own house. He wakes up, everyone's knocking on the door. Where, where is Jesus? And Peter's thinking, oh my, what an opportunity. Jesus is our patron. We, Peter's thinking, and the, the other disciples, we get to be his middlemen, his brokers, who go between Jesus and all the clients. And Peter's thinking, this is my way out of poverty. This is my way into being somebody. We can gain a crowd, In contrast to this, we see Jesus' response to the crowd, to this whole thinking. He instead gets up early while it's still dark so that nobody sees him escape, right? He's escaping in stealth. Nobody knows where he is. They can't hunt him down. And he goes to a desolate place, a lonely place, and he prays. Friends, prayer Prayer is how Jesus kept his head in the right place. Prayer is how he warded off the cancer of crowd craving. Prayer in desolate places. Jesus knew the Father, so he did not need to know the crowds. He knew the delight God had in him, so he did not need to get that delight from the crowds' praise of him. So that's why Jesus tells him, look, We're done here. We're going to go on to the next town. And that is why Jesus moved from town to town. Yes, to spread the news of the gospel, but also to minimize how huge the crowds that followed him would become. Don't get me wrong. Jesus wanted people to believe. He wanted them to know about the kingdom of God, but he did not want the crowd insulating him because he knew the danger of it. So you share the word and you keep moving. That that was his strategy. Now, the early church was very similar. They, um, as, as we opened up by mentioning, they were growing, yet they had absolutely no strategy for growth. Now, this is from history. Okay, Church historians have looked into this, and one guy named Alan Kreider has done some great research on this. He says that when you look through the documents of the early church by early church we mean from the uh, from Acts to right before Constantine becomes Emperor so about 300 AD. So those first 250 years, give or take, they and um, of all the documents written in the early church, there are no manuals on how to evangelize. Listen to that again. There were no manuals on how to evangelize. It clearly was not that important of a strategy to the early church. Now, before you turn me off and think, oh, he's saying we shouldn't evangelize. Before you turn me off, the church did evangelize. That was important to them. But it was not something they labored at to organize or strategize about. It simply happened. They didn't have to talk about evangelizing because it simply happened. What you do find in the writings is a lot of writings on church order, church worship, and of all things, three documents on the subject of patience. <laughs> are you kidding me? You go down the aisles of bookstores today, Christian bookstores. Or, um, well, there aren't many of those anymore, are there? But anywhere we see like religious literature, there's there's a lot of books on how to grow your church, how to be more successful. Like, there's a lot of that. The early church was not into that. You see, they were so focused on making themselves attractive that they didn't have to go out and convince people with their messages. They just didn't do that. They focused on their gathering, being so wholesome, being so loving that it was the Christian himself that was the evangelistic message. That they're gathering, that as outsiders look at them, they say, what an odd bunch of people. These people who come out of the cracks and the margins of society. They're not like us. They love differently. They have a different power than us. Look at how fervently they pray. Outsiders didn't go to church. Church wasn't this thing where the, all the Christians said, hey, please come to church and listen to this message. Maybe you'll get saved. That was not how they did it. Church was for the Christian to build up the Christian. They were not as concerned about gathering a crowd for Christ as they were about building their character for Christ. And that is how they gained 40% per decade. Because in the church were such genuinely converted people who were walking in such a strange and unique way. The outsiders said, eventually... And this takes patience. Eventually said, tell me what makes you the way you are. And it wasn't their message. It was their way of life. And in Acts, we see that they were called. It said Saul persecuted the way. Before they were even known as Christians, they were known as the way. Because it was a way of life that they prioritized. of course, they had teachings, they had beliefs, and they would obviously tell people things, and they asked them. But they thought that the way of life was their evangelism. So what we see very differently today is they saw the Christian himself as the attraction. We see our church services as the attraction. So we try to gather a crowd. We get really great, compelling music that sounds a lot like the stuff on the radio. We um, get funny, cool, hip speakers that um, talk a little bit about the Bible, but use a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of culturally uh, informative stuff to kind of, you know, hook in the outsider. And look, I know people are getting saved in there. I'm not at all trying to say that that's an absolutely worthless endeavor. But I am trying to emphasize that it is a departure from the original vision of the church. For better or worse, time will tell. But I will humbly suggest that the early church, Jesus, and scripture is giving us more than enough advice that drawing a crowd is not worth at. We're not trying to attract people to our worship services. We are living a life that attracts them. And so we use church as a place to build up our life so that when we are not in church, the outsiders will be attracted to us. You see? But that isn't the way to get a crowd. That is evangelism one relationship at a time. And yet, 40% per decade. You see... Mass evangelism is nice, but what it lacks in is getting these Christians to actually follow the way of Christ, to actually start to look like one another, to live in unity. So we get so many saved and then we don't even know what happens to them. Of course, there, of course, there's some really great conversions in there. But when you're doing one-on-one, then this person that I've led to Christ, they have a relationship with me. And in the early church, you would actually become, they would call it the sponsor of this convert. You would be their mentor. You would guide them into the new life. And it's really cool because at Easter, they would have all the new converts get baptized. It was this big celebration. And they would give them, you know what they'd give them? First, they'd give them a cup of water to cleanse their insides. Then they would give them some wine uh, to symbolize, now you're drinking in the blood of Christ. So you're cleansed from your impurities. Now Christ's blood is coming into you. And then third, they give them a cup of honey milk. Why honey milk? Because the promised land was a land flowing with milk and honey. They saw that these people went from Egypt, a place of being lost, outsiders, um, sinners, They had gone through the wilderness as they're getting to know the Christian and they're getting introduced to this way of life. And then on their baptism, it was like crossing the Jordan River. They're now in the promised land. That's how the early church saw themselves. People in the promised land guiding people from Egypt through the wilderness. Does that not resonate with what Isaiah has been preaching? Instead of Egypt, it's Babylon. Go leave Babylon. But I am preparing a way through the wilderness, making the level, making the paths level and smooth. You know, lowering the mountains, raising the valleys. Because he's bringing us to a new promised land. And that's the church. So Jesus, Jesus wants to lead us into the promised land. And he did it. Twelve disciples was his emphasis. Yeah, there may have been more, But he poured into 12. Man, if we could each just pour into one or two in our lifetime, we would, we would make a difference. And that's the early church model. 40% per decade growth. Okay, so what happened? Well, come 300 AD, thereabout, I think it's specifically 312, uh, there's this man named Constantine who's leading his army. And this, Rome had a lot of civil wars. When an emperor would die and there wasn't a clear succession plan or a weak succession plan, like the son of the emperor was weak, there would be a lot of civil wars about who would be the next emperor. Constantine was battling, and he has this vision of the sign of Christ. Uh, it's the first two letters of Christ in Greek, or I think actually in Latin. And so the vision says conquer in the sign. So he takes that sign, puts it on the army's um uh, shields, and, and they, they conquer, and they win, and Constantine becomes emperor. Well, at the time of his ascension, Christianity was being harshly persecuted. So, he sees an opportunity. So he signs what's called the Edict of Milan, and it basically says no more persecution of Christians. He sees it as an opportunity to gain popularity with the mass. Um, the Christians weren't the majority, but he can gain popularity of the Christians and he seeks it as a way to unify the empire. So yeah, he knows paganism will still linger, but he basically says, Hey, I'm a Christian too, which then meant the outsiders, the Christians living in the margins, the cracks, the spaces, they get to now come into the noisy center. Christianity's now cool. The emperor's a Christian. So now the Christians are suddenly on the inside They're in the noisy center, and those who knew it were good for their social status also converted to Christianity. Hence, you have a lot of people steeped in paganism all their lives, suddenly seeing an advantage to becoming Christian, and so they become, I'm air quoting this, they become Christians, and you don't know how much they convert their life to the way of Christ. They may just simply assent to the doctrines, and that's it. And so now we get this really wishy-washy, like this nebulous, ugh, the, the church was growing. It was, it was growing so fast that they stopped meeting in homes and Constantine started ordering the building of churches. They started converting some pagan temples into churches. And now, um, instead of having Christians who were walking the way, mentoring or sponsoring a single person into their baptism, uh, now you have now you have the churches being overwhelmed by how many people are seeking baptism. And so you're basically an assembly line. Dunk, 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 dunk. There is not as much of the discipleship, the one-on-one teaching them the way of Christ. So Christianity is no longer attracting people because of its way of life. It has now simply become the advantage. It's up op- it's an opportunity to become a Christian. And And many historians believe that Christianity has never recovered from this moment, that we've basically always been in a place of some sort of position, and that we've always been attracted to the crowd. We've had a crowd mentality. Now today, this push for the crowd, because we we feel ourselves no longer at the high point, right? We're secular secular the secularization of our culture is just on the rise and Christianity is definitely, it feels like it's in free fall. Maybe that's healthy for the church in the long run. Like maybe we'll stop lusting for the crowds and we'll start lusting for the character of Christ and for Christ himself. Maybe that doesn't sound weird lusting from, but you know, making our desire that way, maybe this is what God's doing. Maybe this is what he's at work doing in our, in our culture, but one of the ways we got here is real quick. Uh, is after World War II, Christianity became very popular, right? Because everyone could just could not believe what had happened to the world. Um, just everything fell apart, and so a lot of people found solace in the church, and it was growing. And we had evangelists rise up, and so it was a great moment and a great movement. And so there's a surge. Um, and so we saw more liberations coming to humanity because of Christianity. We were improving the life of many Americans and around the West. Quality of life was on the rise largely because of Christianity and its vision of humans being made in the image of God. But here's where the challenge came. As our, li- uh, as our liberations grew, so did the self and the sense of a self. So now we could become more autonomous. And now the authority was not in institutions, but the authority was increasingly being placed on the self, the person. It's all about taking care of the human individual. And so as everyone's quality of life went up, so did our autonomy and authority went down so the individual became the authority and so in the 70s you had this quest for self and the whole countercultural movement and hippies and everything so this is quest for self for self development uh, truth is this journey into the self psychology became more important than politics and of course um evangelicalism uh was an interesting message here because it emphasized the individual salvation so of course you have the Jesus movement blowing up but um, around this time, because of course Christianity has this under this movement that's growing, but secularization is so on the rise and the self is so esteemed and lifted up that what you had were missionaries returning to the West from third world countries and realizing after they've been gone for so long, we cannot believe how much our culture's changed. Secularization is on the rise. And so they brought their missionary tactics to the West and they began to use them In our culture, so then, so they were right to think. Okay, the church needs to now be see its own culture as a mission field. But what happened was, the way missionaries will use the indigenous people's um, stories and language and culture, they will use those things common to them to communicate the gospel. Well, we were encouraged to use the things common in our society to communicate the gospel. So many churches began to adopt corporate America, business, excuse me, business practices, and um, the whole idea of, of uh, infrastructure, growing a company, marketing, entrepreneurship. And so church began to be run like a business with a mindset of growth, of prosperity, of here's a product to get buyers, consumerism. And this has led us to this whole crave for being relevant, And so we're looking for cutting edge ways to be attractive and we're getting people to come to our services because we've run it on a business model. It's a, it's a product. Uh, that's, that's probably very, I mean it's a very short and maybe overly simplified version of the history. Um, but as I read it, that's, that's how it's, that's how it's talked about. So, uh, that's how we got where we are. We began we we began to run ourselves like a missionary agency in our culture. Now, that's obviously it's good to be mission minded to the people around us. But how are we doing that? Are we adopting the ways of our culture, or are we using the kingdom of God to reach them? Um, this more to be said about that, and I don't want to say too much because I may or may not have some things to say about that next week. So I'll just hold off for now. But we need to stop using church as a platform to attract the outsider, and we need to start using our character and our formation in the image of Christ as the platform. Yep, it won't attract as big of a crowd, but in the long run, it will multiply stronger disciples of Christ and there will be more actual transformation. So, hopefully you found some of this encouraging. um, (laughs) Hopefully somebody out there cares about me ranting, (laughs) but at the least... I'm encouraged with this vision that all God wants his people to do is love people. Man, I don't have to be this like guru about marketing and like corporation expansion. We just need to get back to teaching people how to pray. Teaching the scriptures. Singing to Christ together breaking bread together, taking communion together, sharing our lives and our stories and helping one another when we're down and out. And you know what? I think if we forget about who's watching or how many people are coming or how popular we are, if we just forget all about that and just focus on walking this Christian life and becoming the healthiest vision and version of that we can be, I think the growth will take care of itself. That certainly was the case in the early church. And I don't know why that would have to change. So be encouraged, my friends, to keep pursuing your love of Christ, to keep growing in that. And people will recognize it. Thank you for listening. This is Pastor Brennan. With grace and gratitude, have a great week.